0: It's critical that we have a firm grasp of the Bible's teaching on the family. That's true whether you live with a family or live alone. We need to resist the challenges and attacks coming from the world and even from professing Christians. Jesus' own responses to those challenges demonstrate some biblical priorities in family matters. Welcome to the Wisdom Journey. Stephen Davey has a lesson for you today called, The Meaning of Marriage and the Value of Children.
1: I read some time ago the statement that the family is under attack today like never before. Now, I don't think very many Christians would argue with that statement, and I I agree with it in one sense, but I happen to disagree with it in another sense. The family has been under attack ever since God created the first one. It didn't take Satan very long at all to divide and conquer Adam and Eve. It didn't take very long for the seeds of jealousy and uh, resentment to grow in the heart of Cain, their firstborn son, who ends up murdering his younger brother Abel. And that was the first family on planet Earth. Well, let me rephrase this statement to read this way. The family is under attack in every generation. From the moment God instituted marriage in the family, beloved Satan has been unrelenting in his attempts to weaken the marriage commitment, to uh, devalue the blessing of children, and even to redefine the meaning of gender and the and the meaning of marriage today, you know I think it's interesting that two thousand years ago, Jesus confronted some of these same issues now at this point he 's making his way toward Jerusalem for the final time hes he's traveling south. From the Galilee region uh, uh, and east of the Jordan River, it's an area known as Perea. And now we read in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 2: Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Well, it isn't long before the Pharisees show up to antagonize Jesus, and, and they ask him the age-old question. He's answered. Uh, already several times before, but here it comes again, verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, we've already dealt with this subject twice before in our wisdom journey as we've been studying through the Gospels chronologically. And I noted in a past study that the Bible uh, allows divorce for adultery, and that includes Uh, immorality, and also where there is abandonment. Now, abandonment is when one spouse doesn't consent to dwell with the other in harmony as set forth by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The word Paul uses therefore, consent refers to pleasing agreement. And let me tell you, even if somebody says they want to stay married, if they subject their spouse to abuse, or addictions, or threats, or deception. These actions clearly indicate a lack of consent, and the suffering spouse is no longer bound to that individual. That's over in 1 Corinthians 7.15. Now, why are these Pharisees coming around once again to ask Jesus this question, you know, all over again? Well, I think geography has a lot to do with it this time. Jesus is in Perea. And this area is governed by King Herod Antipas. Earlier, Herod had convinced his brother Philip's wife to divorce Philip and marry him. Boy, let me tell you, it was tabloid scandal. It was it was front page news at the time. Now, John the Baptist uh, courageously, publicly condemned them for it, and Herod's new wife ended up having John the Baptist beheaded because of it. Well, these Pharisees, I believe here, are hoping Jesus will get into hot water with Herod by answering their question on divorce. But instead, Jesus delivers this rather brilliant answer here in Matthew 19 and verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife? and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, Jesus is saying, you Pharisees only want to talk about how easy it ought to be to get a divorce, but I want to talk about God's design for marriage. And Jesus is quoting, by the way, from Genesis chapter 2, the very first marriage described between Adam and Eve. And there are some timeless principles back here that that give us the meaning of marriage. As God designed it originally. Now, first, here is the principle of severance. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, marriage doesn't mean that you eliminate all your other family relationships. You know, you can't call your parents uh, or visit them over Christmas break any longer. No, this this means that the marital relationship has priority over every other relationship, even good old mom and dad. Now, the meaning of marriage also includes here the principle of, of permanence. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast— to his wife. The Hebrew verb for uh, hold fast, your translation might read cleave, means uh, literally to glue together. And this is describing a lifelong bond. Well, then you have another principle here, the principle of oneness. At the end of verse 24, the Bible says, and they shall become one flesh. The word for one here is the word echad. It means uniquely one one. In marriage, two people become uniquely one. And this is more than sexual or physical oneness. This is oneness in purpose, oneness in direction, oneness in in life. So Jesus is taking these Pharisees all the way back to Genesis and the creation account By the way, that's a reminder that mankind did not invent marriage. God did. Mankind didn't come up with the idea of family. God did. The only thing we do, frankly, is mess it up. That's our contribution. But if we follow the design of God, we can experience and enjoy God's intended design, the meaning of marriage, severance, permanence, and oneness. Now, you'll never fully master the meaning of marriage. But if you belong to the master who created marriage, he can empower you one day at a time to humbly pursue his original design. Well, now, back here in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 10, the disciples follow up uh, this conversation with a rather honest question. And it, it's essentially this question. Since we're sinners and we might fail in marriage— you know, wouldn't it be better to never get married in the first place? Well, Jesus answers that there are some whom God calls to be single, and it really is a matter of following what God wants for your life as he reveals it. And with that, Jesus actually refers to three kinds of single individuals here in verse 12. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs, For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. First, Jesus refers here to some men who are born with physical defects that render them unable to have children, and the likelihood is that they will remain unmarried. The second category are some men who were castrated for some kind of appointment. We know from history that kings often castrated servants who would manage their harem or hold some position in the palace. And then the third category are believers who effectively choose to live as eunuchs. That is, they choose to live single for life. And oftentimes, it's because of their ministry responsibilities. Two of my own cousins, two women served on the mission field that effectively eliminated the potential for marriage. They chose singleness for the sake of the gospel. Now, what happens next, I think, is a rather fitting follow-up to a discussion on marriage. Matthew records here in chapter 19, uh, here at verse 13, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now don't misunderstand Jesus is not saying here that the kingdom automatically belongs to children but to those who are like children that is with nothing to offer the lord but childlike trust and humility. Well the disciples are like their culture around them which viewed children as a, a nuisance and a and, and a distraction but far from uh, from being a nuisance and a distraction Children are a part of Jesus' ministry, and he delivers a rather powerful message through his actions. Do everything you can, he's basically communicating, to help a child come to Jesus. They have tremendous value. They're created in the image of God. They're not to be considered a distraction. Give them the gospel. In fact, beloved, if you're serving in some ministry today for the sake of children— Let me tell you, here's your verse. Here's your verse. Let the little children come to me. They have great value. And let me thank you, by the way, for all the rest of us. Let me thank you for helping children come to Jesus. Many people, including myself, can remember the impact of a loving children's worker, a a, a Sunday school teacher, a Bible study leader who showed interest in us, considered us valuable and helped us find our way to Christ. Let me tell you, yours is a precious ministry. In fact, your ministry reminds me of that little chorus we learned to sing, that children are precious in his sight. Well, with that, we're out of time. Until next time, beloved, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening today as Stephen Davey continues traveling through the Bible on this wisdom journey. Today's lesson was called The Meaning of Marriage and the Value of Children. Please share this message with parents and couples you know. It might really be a blessing to them, and it'll help more people find this content. Join us again next time to continue the wisdom journey.